Welcome back. We're talking about Roe versus Wade. How can we not talk about Roe versus Wade? I'm a legal uh, analyst. I'm a legal talk show host. I'm a practicing lawyer. And this is really a very monumental and historic uh, overturning of a significant right uh, that we had for 50 years. And uh, I'm, I'm surprised we're not getting more texters and phone uh, messages. 312-981-7200. Uh, we have a texter who said, why would anybody care what the next guy does if it doesn't hurt anybody else? It's not like these wackos walking around with guns, shooting each other. The court will allow the states to make their own abortion laws, but will not allow the states to make their own gun laws. And I appreciate that sentiment and not to get academic on you, but I think the idea is that according to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, there never was a constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion. And therefore, uh, it's up to the states to make their own laws on that, whereas the Second Amendment gives uh, people the right to have a gun. And uh, and, and there you go. But I, I understand your sentiment. You know, these are very, very emotional issues. These are just issues that, you know, we're trying to break it down from a legal standpoint. But again, I hear the pain of people on both sides of this issue, and I'm trying not to inflict my opinion uh, on anyone here. Our next guest, uh, John J. Donahue III, is a professor of law at Stanford Law School. We've got a lot of smart people uh, on our show uh, this afternoon. He's also a research professor with the American Bar Foundation. He's been one of the leading empirical researchers uh, for over 30 years. He uh, is, is an economist a PhD from Yale, and uh, also a lawyer, Harvard-educated, and he's known for using empirical analysis to determine the impact of law and public policy in a wide variety of areas, including uh, abortion. Welcome so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Donahue. Uh, good to be with you. And I know you're driving today, and you pulled over on the side of the road to uh, to weigh in on here, and I do appreciate that. Um, let's talk about your study. Now, you have studied abortion not from the viewpoint of morality or religion, or even so much the legal part of it, but really from a statistical viewpoint. Can you tell our listeners what your studies have found regarding uh, the legalization of abortion and how it's affecting and has affected society? Yeah, uh, happy to. Uh, and, and I did get into this uh, particular question because I was essentially trying to understand why in the 1990s, uh, particularly the eight years uh, during the Clinton administration, that we had such a massive drop in crime. And uh, in the course of, of trying to figure out why there was such a drop in crime, uh, the idea came to me that the legalization of abortion in 1973 would improve the lives of the children that were born and essentially put them on a better life path and would reduce the subsequent uh, criminality. But it takes like 18 to 20 years before you start to see those crime effects. And that uh, corresponded very tightly with the pattern of crime reduction that we saw in, in the 90s. So let's let's look at this. So when there is a legalization of abortion, what happens to uh, children, uh, uh, born children, unborn children? What what is what changes the dynamic regarding how is that tied together to criminality? Yeah. So of course there there are extreme cases, and then the the, the more general case, probably the the one case that uh, I stumbled across that was most riveting to me is that the single worst uh, mass shooting anywhere around the world was actually in Norway by a guy named uh, Anders Brevik, who killed 
uh, you know, something like 90 uh, people in, in a mass shooting where he was killing uh, school children on an island. Um, and it turns out that his mother had sought an abortion. She, she had a lot of uh, mental illness struggles, but she sought the abortion just after Norway cut off the ability to have that abortion. And this child was born into very, very dire circumstances. The, the mother rejected the child uh, completely, abused the child. Uh, the authorities wanted to take the child away, um, but ultimately uh, he remained with the abusive mother and ended up um, going down this path of crime. So that's, of course, the most extreme case. But in general, what we know is that the life circumstances, particularly early life circumstances of the child, matter greatly to the course of of their uh, life prospects. And if you allow mothers to make the choice uh, at at which time they would like to bring children into the world, they do a lot better than if, uh, you know, know, the government is telling them when they have to bring a child into the world. Because, uh, you know, there there are all sorts of circumstances that might might not make it advantageous. Either you're too young, uh, you're in an abusive relationship, you're the, you know, the child, uh, the pregnancy is a product of rape or incest. So all of these um, uh, situations are outcomes that would um, lead to more adverse life uh, experiences if, if those children are brought, brought into the world, rather than allowing the mother to um, choose the timing for bringing children into the world and presumably choosing the optimal timing for her and her family. And this sort of goes against the idea that women are reckless and careless and abort at any given time just by on a whim. You know, what you're saying is that these women are making pretty rational choices. Maybe they don't have a partner, or like you said, an abusive partner. Maybe they're they're young. Maybe they're in high school. Uh, you know, maybe they uh, are in an impoverished situation. Maybe they have four kids already and not getting child support and not getting any uh, child care and, not, and, and does not have a father in the, in the picture. And so when women make these decisions, they're making a good decision for their for themselves and, 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 for, and for that unborn child who might, like you say, be raised in an, in an environment that's not optimal. Um, very, very interesting. And now you've received a, probably a little bit of criticism with the idea that there is some kind of eugenics-ish um, element to this. But how, how do you respond to that, that this is sort of like, uh, you know, basically we're weeding out the, the bad in society by using abortion to do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have heard that criticism, but, but I do think it is uh, a, a bit misguided uh, because essentially the eugenics movement was all about restricting the ability of women to uh, procreate uh, with the idea that you would weed out uh, bad elements. But uh, legalization of abortion sort of did the opposite. It allowed the women to decide whether to have children or not. So rather than taking away uh, the right to make that determination. Uh, this gave the women the right to make that determination. So it, 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 it is true that I, I think the evidence is fairly clear that uh, legalization of abortion does make the lives of, of women and the resulting cohort of children better. Um, but without the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the sort of malicious uh, nature of a eugenics movement that would take away from certain people the ability to procreate. 
We're talking to Professor John J. Donahue III, who's a professor of law at Stanford Law School. Can you hold a minute? We're going to come back, take a break, and we come back. I've got some textures, and i got some more questions for you. Sure. Okay. You're listening to The Karen Conti Show on WGN. We're talking about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. I'm going to quickly read some of our textures from 815. Why can't the issue of pro-choice or pro-life be put on the ballot so all people can decide instead of just nine people? Well, I think that's kind of what's going to happen. Maybe not a national referendum, but you're going to be voting for uh, your uh, legislators in your state. In Illinois here, we have a law that protects women's right to choose, so we're not going to be really affected by that as much as maybe some of the other states. From the 847 area code, more people have been killed by far by abortions than any firearms in COVID combined. I questioned that study, and I think what the texture was saying was that if you count the aborted fetuses as, as uh, human beings, then that would that statistic is, is accurate, um, according to him uh, or her. And there's always the option of adoption. Yes, I know. And there are so many ways not to get pregnant nowadays. It's called being a responsible adult. You know, when I hear those kind of things, I think punitive. I feel like you want to punish the woman for having sex without protection, or maybe it failed. Maybe she did use protection, and maybe it failed. And what about the guy? Mm, I don't know. He doesn't He doesn't have to take care of the child, I guess. Is killing b- people bad? That's the essential question here. Uh, from the 847 area code, men should never have a say about a woman's body. It's interesting to see people in strong marriages saying this will make families stronger. I feel they do not understand the repercussions this will have on females who are poor, single, and in horrible relationship. Mind your own uterus perfectly sums it up. So we've got people across the board obviously feeling very strongly about it and i appreciate your comments and i appreciate your opinions um we are talking to professor john j donahue uh who's a professor of law at stanford and he has done some studies about the effect of legalization of abortion um you know your studies uh you know are not talking about the morality of it uh and or the religious aspects of it you're really looking at the effects on society and is this do you think that's a good way to kind of um study this issue in order i mean what what do you what uh what is your goal in drawing uh the public attention to the ramifications of these types of laws or out or outlawing abortion right well as as i said i was a crime researcher and really one of the most profound socioeconomic events of uh the last hundred years, really, was the enormous drop in crime that we saw during the 1990s. And so understanding that was extremely important, because uh, obviously uh, we, we do want to keep crime down. Uh, and, and part of the story involved uh, issues about guns, but part of it uh, um, involved uh, abortion. And it turned out the abortion effect was uh, a surprisingly uh, large effect in the United States. So I do think it's it's uh, something that everyone should be cognizant of, and, and even the people who feel very strongly about uh, uh, abortion being morally wrong should be uh, mindful that the, uh, the consequences of restricting women's ability to choose when their families begin uh, does come at a very high price for society, and and therefore, um, uh, if you're if you're concerned about that high price, uh, it's important to think about other ways to address those concerns rather than just say, 
you know, tough luck on the poor women, and they're just going to have to live with uh, a, a more troubled life and, and children with more troubled lives. And, you know, this is sort of off topic that uh, our topic, Professor, but, you know, I, I wonder if we're going to see in these states, Mississippi and some of the states that are going to have outright uh, restrictions or bans on abortion, if we're going to see child support laws be strengthened, if we're going to see child care be more readily accessible, uh, and, and also medical care for, for pregnant women, uh, you know, extending that so that if, if a woman is going to give birth and she maybe didn't want to in the first place or she's impoverished, doesn't have a partner, doesn't have a support system, is she going to get the medical care necessary to make sure her baby is um, is born healthy uh, and the like? So that that'll be an interesting uh, that'll be something interesting to see if 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 the legislators will come to the table on those issues. Um, I'm going to switch topics a little bit, and this is um, another case that came down this week, another monumental case. This week, the Supreme Court struck down a 108 year old New York law restricting people from obtaining concealed carry license. Um, apparently in New York, it was very difficult to get a concealed carry. You'd have to show almost that you were like a a private investigator or something like that. And uh, the Supreme Court says, nope, we have a right to guns in our home and we have a right to walk around with the gun and you can't unduly restrict that right. Um, Now, you've you've also studied the effect of concealed carry laws on violent crime. Can you talk a little bit about what your results are, Professor? Yeah. So again, this is an area that I've worked for many, many years, and um, it, it actually took quite a bit of research over the years to uh, ascertain the full consequences of the movement towards permissive carry. But we now know uh, that essentially, while there are sort of uh, sporadic times where someone is able to use a gun effectively to thwart or deter crime, uh, that on balance, the net effect of allowing more people to be carrying guns around is to uh, substantially increase violent crime, uh, and specifically firearm violent crime. And, and a host of unintended consequences are unleashed when you just allow anyone who wants to carry a gun to, uh, to be able to do so. You talk a little bit about the theft of guns. And, and again, you know, the more guns out there, the more guns are going to be used. And, and you do talk about theft. And, and, and I assume that theft of guns is a big problem because the people who are stealing guns are using them for illegal purposes. Yeah, people don't realize that the single most common uh, act of uh, a gun and crime involves the theft of guns. It happens about 400,000 times a year. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, about 100,000 times uh, of those 400,000 thefts are caused by right-to-carry laws, because once you take the gun outside the home, it is much more susceptible to theft and, and therefore has played a very substantial role in, in the increase in uh, theft. And, of course, that means some hopefully law-abiding citizen has just armed the criminal, uh, and that's obviously not something that we're excited to do. And you also talk about police effectiveness being impacted by concealed carry. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, as we saw in the Uvalde shooting, uh, police are really apprehensive about only one thing in life, which is the, the prospect of getting shot. No other, no other thing besides a car accident or COVID is really a threat to a police officer, but they do feel and fear the danger of being shot. And so when you start allowing uh, citizens to carry handguns, it changes the equation for police, and police are 
constantly uh, in friction with citizens uh, who are getting very angry at them for trying to stop them from speeding and giving them tickets and doing all sorts of other things. And so you're burdening burdening police. And so one way to think about it is uh, allowing permissive carry is like a tax on police. They've got to deal with the hundreds of thousands of gun thefts. Uh, they have to do all sorts of uh, uh, things that, uh, you know, dealing with the accidents and, and lost and stolen guns. Um, but they also uh, are, are going to be much more cautious in approaching certain situations. And the consequence of this is we see a, a fairly significant drop in clearance rates of crimes. That's the uh, rate at which police are able to solve crimes. And of course, solving crime is one of the most important ways to reduce crime. And so when you impair police productivity, uh, you get a, a, an increase in crime as a result of it. So so many different ways, road rage, gun theft, uh, impaired police productivity, uh, criminals start carrying guns more often when, when permissive carry laws go into effect. So a, a lot of bad things happen that most of the uh, individuals who like the idea of concealed carry don't think about. And unfortunately, the justices of the Supreme Court seemed utterly ignorant of this array of unintended consequences. John, John Donahue, Professor Donahue from Stanford Law School, thank you so much for joining us.